0: Well now, we are going to turn and the most of our time this evening will be occupied with the last epistle that Paul wrote, the second epistle to Timothy. You may remember last evening we suggested that it had links with Philippians. Where Philippians says the prize of the high calling, Timothy says the crown and the reigning, which come very much for the same thing. But there is a great difference between the state of affairs of obtained obtained when Philippians was written, and when Second Timothy was written. When you read Philippians, you're continually coming up against the word that commences with the little preposition, together with. They were standing together with. They were having fellowship together with. And that makes a tremendous difference to God's people. But when you come to the Second Timothy, over and over again, it is thyself, thyself, thyself. Well, now we happen to live in Second Timothy time. Valuable as it is to meet together like this, you know how much there is in this witness that depends upon the individual loyalty of one person willing to stand alone. And as this truth, if it's not practical, is not worth a bother, I think we ought to face these things. So for the moment, we're looking at the atmosphere, the context, and the last epistle that Paul wrote. And one of the things that immediately stand out to us is that there's no other part of the New Testament that so explicitly emphasizes the inspiration of all Scripture than this last epistle. Either accidental or it's on purpose. Surely it's on purpose. But when I cast my eye over other Scriptures, I'm conscious of something similar. When our Savior himself had come to the end of his ministry, just before he was offered as a sacrifice for sin, he said, thy word is truth. And when Peter, knowing that he was soon about to be offered, wrote his epistle, he spoke about the fact that the prophets and the scriptures never came by their own unfolding, but holy men of God's faith as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now I'm speaking to those I know this evening, who do love the word of God, who do, do not need to be uh, persuaded by all sorts of arguments to believe it's truth, But you you must be ever mindful that we have an insidious enemy. And as sure as you come to the conclusion that you have no more need to stress the absolute urgency of the word of God, depend upon it is going to take that opportunity to get something else in. So never think that it is out of date to Emphasize to all those with whom you meet. Not only that you must rightly divide the word, but that what you do divide is the word of truth. Now, shall we look then, even though you know it, so that nobody here shall go without a testimony. Because I do not know you. I can't even judge your character by your face, even if you can't judge mine. Only God knows that. So for the sake of even one person here, who may not be perfectly sure. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. The 15th chapter refers back to Timothy's childhood. So after saying we'll start at chapter 3, 15, uh, like an Irishman, I hope there's no one here going to tell me that afterwards, I'll turn to chapter 1. Here Paul is referring to Timothy's childhood. And he says in verse 3, I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. Now on the surface, that does not tell you what he meant. Because he wasn't serving God with a pure conscience, exactly the same as his forefathers did. He uses the little word, apo, which means away from. The Apostle Paul had a a grief in his heart that when he saw the truth that was uh, was pertaining to Christ, he became an outcast from his home. He had no home that he ever went back to after his conversion at Damascus, as far as we know. He went to Tarsus, but there's no reference to his parents. Never again did he speak of them as though they knew him or he knew them. And so he said to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, although I'm separated from my forefathers, I do it with a pure conscience. And then he said to Timothy, verse 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Mary, and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. I wonder, whether you see what he's doing? Primarily, this epistle was not written to you and me. It was written by the Apostle Paul, knowing full well that he was soon to leave this world, and he was giving all that he got to encourage a rather timid young man to step into his shoes. You imagine, in the days of Rome, with Nero on the throne, with a, with a Christian being already outside the pale, Condemned and destroyed wherever they were taken. Timothy, who had to be jogged and urged by Paul, let no man despise thy youth, be no longer a water drinker and all this. What an unlikely man that was to step into these shoes of a man like the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? And the reason why it was unlikely is because it was a matter of grace and not physical ability or mental uh, endowment. Uh, Paul was an earthen vessel. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a trad- tradition traditionally to his eyebrows, and he became the apostle of the Gentiles whom he wouldn't have touched with a barge pole. And he was a weak little man, Timothy, as far as we can see. There's a word going to meet us in a moment you'll see while I'm stressing this. And he was going to say right out when Paul had gone, and had the burden of all his responsibility, only because he's dealing with the God of grace and not merely by works or law. So he reminds him of his home. I wonder whether Timothy and Paul ever had conversations like some of us do. One man says, I know the spot, I know the place where I was brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. And the other one says, I wish I knew that. I never quite know when I became a Christian. And instead of leaving it there, they either argue the point or they get worried over it. Paul says, look, I know the place where I was brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. I could take it to the road of Damascus and say it was there. Timothy says, well, I don't know. But he said, Timothy, stop for a minute. Well, I'm glad to know I can take it to the spot, what wouldn't I have given to have had a mother and a grandmother to teach me the scriptures from my infancy? Don't you see, Timothy, you've got an advantage over me, as well as I've got an advantage over you. So, let us face the fact that God has different ways for different people, and we better accept it. Many years ago, there was a little booklet written by a lady in London, and it was a sort of a parable. She wrote this book on how a river ought er, to flow. The river's all in conference, and they're trying to decide the proper correct course for a river. And I think the river Rhine said that no river was worthy of the name if it didn't rise in a glacier. It was a highbrow sort of river. And the river Tren said in a little weak voice, well, I don't rise in a glacier. And the Nile said, no river is worth the name that doesn't spread over of mud all over its banks in Egypt. And the Tren says, well, when I spread mud over my banks, it's an awful row. And they ultimately came to see that every river ran its own course according to God's ordinance, and it was such a foolish thing to compare one with the other. Now I don't know whether anybody here is bothered about this, but we are individuals, even though we're members of a body. Do you remember in Ephesians 4, after giving the stress upon the unity of the Spirit, all one body, it then whenever you read the word but, do stop and think it's changing the subject. But, to each one of us is given grace. Not merely in, in a bulk, not merely lost in a mass, but to each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gifts of Christ. Well so now, he's reminding us that we have a great advantage in knowing these holy scriptures. We will just read the next, verse um, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stirred up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting under my hand and somebody reads that and off he goes oh it's all false what we teach Pentecost is still here but this is referring to one man who had been particularly picked out during the period of the Acts of the Apostles for a special ministry and he had a special gift well that's all it says it doesn't say you are here or I am here. So we needn't be bothered over that. Well he says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, and that's not quite the translation. This word is actually the word cowardice, and comes in the book of the Revelation of those who are fearful or cowardly, whose destiny is dreadful. Now Paul would never have used that word unless he felt it was absolutely necessary all Timothy, he says, you're facing, I know, you're facing what might be horror. Oh, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Now leading up to it. Be not thou therefore ashamed. And one of the key words of Second Timothy is this word, ashamed. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now... That's the reference. Now, in chapter 315, he refers to that childhood once more. And in, he says, and that from a child. And that word child is one of many words that could be so translated. I'm thinking, I'm guessing for a moment, it's a long time since I looked this up, but there's five or six possible words in the Greek New Testament that could be translated as child. Now, this word is blephos. And it means a child on its mother's knee, As young as ever you can think. Would you say, you don't mean to tell me that Timothy was taught the scriptures when he was about a week old? No, but the point is this, that he never could look back upon a time when that word was not in evidence. Now the word scripture in this verse is the word grammatica And it simply means the letter of the word. She wasn't indoctrinating little Timothy and making him old before his years. But somebody said they didn't like to teach their little child the Bible because if they were too good, God might take it to heaven a little bit before the time. Well then you really worry about that thing. But there's this about it, if a little child can be taught high little of the cat and the fiddle, it can also be taught the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He will his give it brainstorm. What else? He's taught the holy writings, which are able to make me wise unto salvation. Now we've got to for a moment. However much we value the Scriptures, the Scriptures are only of use if they lead us to Christ. This doesn't say the Scriptures save us. The Scriptures make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, from that, I'm going to stop for a moment and think about the Bereans. Because I suppose we all hope or claim to be actuated by the Berean spirit. And the Berean spirit is that we search and see. Now, do you know there's another word in John's Gospel that we ought to take as a corrective? In John's Gospel, the fifth chapter, he said to those who were surrounding him, he said to them, we search the Scriptures. For in them ye think he have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. What a tragedy. To know the Bible so well that you never bother to see Christ. Think of the men that were living there when Christ was born. The scribes and the Pharisees were appealed to by Herod. Herod said, where should he be born that he's king of the Jews? All oh, they said. He will be born in Bethlehem, for it is written. And they quoted the passage. They didn't mean that the guy would look it up. They told him, but not one of them ever went to see. It was a poor, ignorant shepherd that went to see. So my point is, even a Berean may search the Scriptures, but if he's not conscious all the time that the goal of his search is the person of Christ, he may come short. So he says, these Scriptures are valuable. They're able to make wise unto salvation, but the salvation comes by faith in Christ. And then he gives this, this testimony concerning these scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word scripture is changed. This is not the same as the one in verse 15. This is the word gospel, which we know in such words as Photography and lithography and a graphic description is anything that is written. The written word of God is written with a pen. But this says the written word of God is given by inspiration, and that word means to breathe. You know, you inspire and this weather you can't help but sometimes perspire, and it's all meaning to breathe. So what it says here is that that which is written is that which God breathes. The Apostle Peter seemed to say much the same in the Acts of the Apostles when he said, The Holy Ghost by the mouth of David, faith, right. and we've got it written. We're not ever doing enlarge on this too much because let it be God, you and I do, believe these holy scriptures. But we do well to keep it in fact, but without them. We have neither chart nor compass, and we haven't got even anything to divide. Well you see one of the need, needs perhaps for so that to be emphasized by chapter four. <coughs> because in chapter four, he gives you a little forecast of the attitude of people as the last days of this this, this dispensation come. In the beginning of chapter three, he says, This know also that in the last days Perilous times shall come. Now he's not speaking of the last days of Old Testament prophecy, but that hasn't started. He's speaking of the last days of the dispensation of the mystery. Our days! Perhaps we're on the very verge of these days. At least there are some things here which make you wonder whether we are not very near them, When he says, for men to be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, lust Disobedient to parents, that's even shifted. Why, we've outgrown that, haven't we? I mean, we have to remember that the psychologist tells us that we mustn't prevent all these self-expressions of our dear little children. They can teach you right and left, they can do anything, because, oh, they mustn't have any inhibitions. But even the epistle of the Ephesians, this this written, written to the church of the one body, in the practical section, it emphasizes that children should obey their, their parents and refers them back to the law of Moses. what Paul does. He doesn't say as of, I imagine some people would expect the New Testament to be written, that a parent or father and mother who don't believe dispensational truth, they've got a little child and they say, No, little Tommy, we are all members of one body. And little Tommy says, oh, if that's the case, we're all on equal terms. And he gets away with it, he becomes a nuisance to himself and everybody else. Oh, there's no such thought of that in the scriptures. And it's growing. Paul puts his finger on that very thing as one of the marks, and everybody's letting it slide and letting people indoctrinate you with this psychological virus until parents are handcuffed and their children are running wild. That's only one thing. And says these fabulous times are here, and the category is sketched out a bit more in chapter 4. I charge thee therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as he's appearing in his kingdom, what does he charge you? Preach the word. That's the one thing he emphasizes. Preach the word. We must know the word ourselves. We must believe it ourselves before we can preach it. But he immediately says, but don't expect you're going to be always accepted. He tells you plainly, the instant, in season, of season, with food, with you, with all long-suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall be to themselves teachers, having itchy ears. It isn't the teachers have got itchy ears, it's the people have got itchy ears who get the teachers to tickle them. They call somebody to occupy their pulpit because he's just the man who suits them. And that's where they are. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And they shall be turned unto fables. And that word fable is the word myth. And if you've any knowledge of the commentaries that are written on the Bible today, any amount of them that you start reading the book of Genesis will be scattered all the way through with the word myth. I want you to think of this. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. And this word myth is the brother of the word mystery. They both come from the same root. And it seems to me, as these days close, that the Christian church will either believe the mystery that was revealed or will return to myth. One or the other. It will be a deciding factor. And then he says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. But he's already said in chapter 1, All they in turn away from me. That's a word for us. When any person wants to attack the blessed teaching of this ministry, he first of all attacks the apostleship of Paul. Some years ago you had a lady here whose name was known in England as well as in America, Amy Matthews. Well, I don't think I was enamored I was of her, but I was interested to hear one remark that she, played, she said. She said, the only person in the New Testament she couldn't get on with was the Apostle Paul. I said, good. I don't think the Apostle Paul would feel very upset over that, except they'd be sorry for her. And you see, you've only got to detrust from the Apostle Paul's ministry to upset all his teaching. Well, now I wish we could stop the clock and start all over again and run back to his opening epistle. But I will give it to you quickly. You know how his opening epistle starts? Paul an Apostle, not of men, not of our men, but by Jesus Christ, That me. Straight off. Man ruled out of it. My gospel was not taught me. I received it by revelation. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went up with Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Three times over in that chapter of Galatians, not, neither, but. An independent apostle. An independently received gospel. And an independent commission. That's the name that God sent to you and to me. Now that sticks in their views and they don't like that. So watch out for the person who begins to speak against Paul. He's actually speaking against Paul's crust and Paul's Lord and undermining the basis of our faith. Well, now the next thing is 2 Timothy 2.15. The very same epistle which says all scripture is profitable, says you must rightly divide it. And that's a valuable thing. Because you see, there are some people who have come to the conclusion that those who divide the word of truth are right, they don't think you do it, are right. But those who divide the word of truth are right; are robbing them of the Bible. But the same man who says rightly divided says, all is inspired, and all profitable. So far as I can say, for my own personal testimony, I've occupied about creeping on to fifty years, and I've patiently come up through the Old Testament scriptures, through every book, till I get to Isaiah. I didn't stop deep- then. And I said, well, if I'm going to go probably through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, I shall have to be as old as Methuselah by the time I get to the Gospels, and so I have to acknowledge that I was beaten. But nobody could accuse me that because I see the dispensation of the mystery and rightly divide the word of truth, that I don't have all Scripture as my territory. The only thing about it is that I'm not taking it all to myself. I've got the plan of God, and I'm seeing my place in it. But I'm so glad to see all the rest. So we must never so present the principle of right division as though it cuts us off from the rest of the Word of God. It might be all necessary for all the calling and all the people at all times till travelling days are done. So a word with regard to this passage, verse 15. Study to show thyself? He another one of those passages in Timothy, which is thyself. He's speaking to him personally. How did the show thyself approved unto God? Study. It's rather an awkward word there, because i admit people who conjure up the thought that they're not tedious. They seem to think you must have a room with a roll-top desk before you could even start 2 Timothy 2.15. But I remind them this is addressed to A workman. A workman. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Needeth not to be ashamed. Where will that shame possibly be? It will be when this workman gives account to him that sent him. The Apostle Paul is going to use that word ashamed with regard to other people's opinion. He entertained so highly the opinion of Christ that it didn't matter to who what anybody else said so far as he was concerned except that he loved them and would seek to help them but not to be influenced by them. And the great emphasis, of course, is rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, now I come back to Timothy himself. We are told that Timothy was the son of a Jew, and his father was a Greek. That's told you in Acts 16. We know that he lived in the days of the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul is speaking to him. And in the days of the Apostle Paul, Hebrew was not a spoken language among the ordinary people, But they were all reading their authorised version which was the Greek Bible, especially if he had a Greek father. So now among the books which Timothy's mother would be most sure to teach her little son would be some of the Proverbs. So when Timothy read these words, the word that we divided was noted him. Here is the verse that contains it in Proverbs chapter three, five and six trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy path. Our version says, he shall direct thy path. But if you look at the word direct long enough, you'll see it means rightly divide. D-I, direct, rectangle, right. As I was saying to some friends, I come out of a railway station, in a new city, I speak to somebody, I say, could you direct me to whatever the address is? Well, no, if that person says, um, let me see, uh, it's," um, I say, all right, I'll ask somebody else, thank you. Because I want that city rightly divided for me. I don't know, where he told over here somewhere. No, he says, take the second turning on the right, round the corner, across the city, rightly divided. And that's all rightly divided you needn't be a student. You needn't know Hebrew and Greek. You needn't know even grammar. You speak without. you know that, don't you? It's only these people who invented afterwards to make a life out of misery. Did so you see? He says, look, Paul says, if he's living in this if it has got a not when you're driving your car to observe the finger post on the road don't you go. That's all you need to rightly divide the word of truth. It's a post word. He shall rightly divide thy power. Well, that great principle has governed our study of the word and must ever govern it if we're going to understand its teaching. Now, let's come back to chapter 1. Three times in this chapter does the apostle use the word ashamed. Verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. It's the testimony of the Lord first and the prisoner second. It's not an idea that Paul has invented, it's an idea that the Lord has given him and entrusted to him. And then you see the reason why he has to encourage this young and shrinking man. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Afflictions of the gospel. Chapter four. Verse five. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. It looks as though, he said, Timothy, as sure as you do the work of an evangelist, you'll know what afflictions are. So I can't imagine Timothy ever saying to anybody that he thought he would uh, go into the ministry. I think he would get out of it unless it was laid upon him by the living God in spite of his feelings. So he says, he has saved us from that I'm back in chapter 1 and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, strictly speaking, before age time. Now, as this belongs to the same company that were addressed in Ephesians, they were chosen before the foundation of the world. These are chosen before age times. Oh, Euclid comes along and says to me, things which are equal to the same things are equal to one another. The age times begin when the foundation of the world is there, and so I start the ages this side of Genesis 1, verse 2. And they go right through to the new heaven and new earth That's the end of the ages, and we've reached the period when what we call time in its reckoning shall be no more. And then he says in verse 10 that is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher. Here we touched upon another subject. When I wasn't being called all manner of names for rightly dividing, dividing the word of truth I was called other sorts of names equally wonderful because of this great question of immortality. There are those who believe that man possesses an immortal soul and nothing else, nothing can be done about it, even by God himself. But this associates immortality with the abolition of death. And immortality occurs only in the context where resurrection is in view. But I think I've asked the trouble enough without going into that. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that you understood where I say. Now he says in verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. Will you look at 1 Timothy, chapter 2, after speaking about the one mediator, he says in verse 7, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher, and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and verity. So in both of these epistles to Timothy, he stresses the fact that he was a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. That when he said it first, he had to take almost an oath. This man, right through to the end of his days, was fighting for the recognition that was withheld from him. He was a man. Right through to the de- end of his days, he had to say those words, that I have been appointed an apostle and a, pro- uh, a teacher of the Gentiles. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 1. For which cause I also suffer these things? So is I. Timothy wasn't the only one who was going to endure and suffer because of the truth. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. He called upon Timothy not to be ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed. Could I know whom I have believed? And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, I don't know whether you have a hymn that people sing sometimes in meetings. I know whom I believe and am persuaded. You know, have you got that one? And everybody sings it, is intending that they're committing their soul into the hands of the Lord. When I'm strictly speaking, that isn't what Paul said here. Let me revise. And only use the words which are written by him. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, that he is able to keep that which has been entrusted against that vain. It doesn't say to whom it was entrusted, but the next verse that one does. We'll read verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. Heard of me. He repeats it in chapter 2, verse 2. The things which thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. is me he insistent? Have a rough trust at the teaching which you heard of me, Timothy, and pass that on to others to teach others. So, we're not magnifying Paul, as he said, Paul was not crucified for us, but he received something from the risen Christ and passed it on to us as a sacred trust. And that's what he says in verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Now that word committed is already in verse 12 and has been repeated again in chapter 2 verse 2. And some sons take it in order to make it stand out. That good deposit. Good departed. Well as you turn the page, you'll find that he stresses something good in chapter 4. He says, in verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand." Last night I drew your attention that those two words occurred in Philippians and nowhere else. In Philippians he said, he desires to depart. In 2 Timothy he says, I'm, I'm about to depart. In Philippians he said, if I be offered. In Second Timothy he says, I'm about to be offered. Then he says in verse 7, I have fought a good fight. Now this word fight is not a martial fight. It's nothing to do with a soldier. It's the word "adona," which gives us our word agony. And he's actually translated grace in, in Hebrews 12, where it speaks of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured a cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand the race that was set before us. It was the word used for the Greek force. It may be running, it may be wrestling, it was a conflict with a prize in view. So we're back with Philippians. There was the same idea, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth under the things which are before according to a mark, I suppose, because they had a white line down the course, and if you stepped over the white line to take a mean advantage of anybody else, you were disqualified, And so we read in this, no man is crowned except his tribe lawfully. If it is qualified, we're not dealing with salvation, but with crown. We'll come to that in a moment, I hope. Here he says, I have fought a good contest. I have finished my course. Now these two words are important. The word finished is built up of the word that gives us the word perfect. You remember in Philippians, he said, not as though I were already perfect, for I'm running. And when we read that even Christ was made perfect, we wonder, because he was always holy, harmless, undefiled, sinless. So that's because of the way in which we, we use the word perfect today. The word tedios, which is the word perfect, and the word tetaniti, which he says, I have finished, if you can hear the word tetiel. Why well, in everyday use? You needn't be a Greek student to know television, telephone, telegram, telescope, all we can go on. What does that mean in our tongue? What common denominator do we give to all those words? What links together television, telegram, telescope, telephone? System. Yes. Telegram, we write at a distance, telephone we speak at a distance, telescope we look at a distance. And the word perfect means that you've not only started, but you're finished. It's the same passage that you have in Philippians chapter one, being confident of, of this very thing. That he which has begun a good work and you will finish it. Epicelio. Take it right to the extreme end. And when you're dealing with a race course, it's the man who touches a place that matters, not the man who starts off well. He may stop, he may be distracted. So we're not on the ground of salvation now, we're on the ground of the prize or the crown, and so we'll look at that next. But the word course for a moment, I have finished my course. That is the word drummer. And I dare say you know the word hippodrome. Hippo means a horse, drama means to run it means the race course. So we've got terms here in New Philippians of running a course. With a prize in view. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Oh, he adds one more word, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, that he's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. So, so far as Paul was concerned, he now knew. In Philippians he said, not as though I had already attained. All he knew there were many possibilities of slipping, But he said, now I know. Now, if you turn back to chapter 2, you'll find him discussing the difference between salvation by grace and the added crown. <coughs> Verse 11, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead, or better still, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, that's finished. If by the grace of God we have believed him, and we are reckoned to have died with Christ, to be buried with him and finished, we shall, no possibility of doubt, we shall live with him. Now he said, if we suffer, or better still, if we endure, we should also reign with him. Now he is reigning with him exactly the same as living? Reigning has to do with a crown. And the Apostle Paul said at the end of his course, "Henceforth a crown. But he wasn't sure of it before. So now we're rightly dividing the word of truth between that which is God's gift and that little added reward that you may win or lose. Everybody don't get the prize of the high calling. even Paul himself wasn't sure of it at first. So he says, If we deny him, he will also deny us what? Of life? Oh no, no, no. Only the crown. And then he comes back on it again and says, even if we are faithless, even if we are not always believing. He abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. So do keep, keep those things distinct. Well now there's another feature, which is just asking for a word. He says in this passage, chapter 4, that we've been touching upon the crown, he says, well not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. But it's even more insistent than that. It's all those who have loved his appearing. They've gone right through. They haven't given it up. Now, this doesn't mean that you become a member of a second advent society and go to meetings every six months where they argue about the second coming. Oh, that's important. But these have loved it. And when when you love it, it influences your life. See what it says here. Demas hath forsaken me having loved. This present world. See that? it's true by the apostle. and we're not told he suddenly gave up all the truth. We're not told that he suddenly said, well, I don't believe this mystery, I'm going back to become a member of the Pentecostal church, or anything like that. He just snipped up on his love. He loved this present world. So will you come back to chapter 3 with the characteristics that are going to be so marked in the closing days of this dispensation here it is verse 2 For so men should be lovers of their own selves that's what it says that's the very first thing that's said and if that's true all the rest must follow the next word doesn't at first appear to you to have the word love in it but it has the word covetous is simply two words joined together loving silver and then at the end of the story verse 4 Lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. So the evil characteristics of the last day are all attributed to love being misplaced. Demas, love the wrong thing. Those who love his appearing will be honoured by the Lord. So we're getting right out to where the Apostle said, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Our old version says charity, and charity used to be used for the love of God, but it's been come out so many words abused. used, I don't know whether you have the saying, but we used to have it as cold as charity, and so we give it up, but this is the simple word, love.